Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 124, recorded on September 29th of 2020, the most memorable year that everybody wants to forget. It's been great. Um, <laughs> with me today on this Photo Geekery show is somebody that I hold in very high esteem, uh, not only for his photographic chops, but his video intuition and knowledge. And uh, I mean, he should know all this stuff. He's editing videos all the time for DP Review TV. And that is Mr. Jordan Drake. Jordan, how you doing? It's been a while since we've chatted. Yeah, been a little bit. I mean, it's been busy, which is surprising given the time of year it is. And we're just coming into fall camera rush. So it'll be even busier, I'm guessing. Uh, but uh, yeah, really interesting time in the industry, along with everything else that's been going on. And you, your guesses, I mean, you can't tell us stuff. No, but if but 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 if you could say that some manufacturer, it could be Canon, Nikon, Sony, Panasonic, Pentax, uh, Yashica, somebody's coming out with a new camera. Somebody somewhere across the industry has an unannounced product in the works, and you may or may not have knowledge of that, uh, and and that's okay. We'll see it when it comes to fruition. Yeah, I got a lot of secrets. Actually, out of frame, you can see my webcam here, Don. The viewers at home can't. Just tons of out-of-focus things that haven't been announced yet. <laughs> I look forward to what what comes of that. Although, I mean, we've uh, we've had so much, uh, just before we started recording, uh, that happened over the summer, which is usually a slow period of time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everything from the, the EOS R6 and R5, the A, uh, A7C, the, uh, the Lumix S5, and so much more. I mean, it's just been a really busy time for you, especially, uh, you know, when we're all struggling to find that professional time to get stuff done, right? Right. Yeah. Editing has been a little more difficult with a lot more people around the house, but we're still cranking stuff out. Yep. Uh, so what's some of the latest stuff you've been up to that you can uh, talk about? Yeah. Um, what was the last one? Oh, yeah. The, the um, Fuji 50 mil F1 was the last thing that I found very interesting. The fastest autofocus lens ever made, uh, which was um, it's pretty soft. <laughs> There, well, I just saved you watching the review. There you go. Uh, <laughs> although the Canon uh, uh, EF 50mm f1.0 was also a an autofocus yeah. lens, um, and oh, it technically right. let more light in because it was on a full-frame sensor versus a crop. Right, right, right. Um, so I'm calling you on that, but uh, it autofocused terribly, and the optical quality was awful, too. So yeah. uh, it's This is kinda... better than that one. Um <laughs> Okay. It's it's a character lens. We're not seeing a lot of those right now, but it is tough to review when everything has been so good coming out, like those RF 1.2 lenses and stuff. Well, you mentioned the character lens because uh, a lens that has an optical quality that is imperfect yet somehow lends itself to be um, interesting, intrinsic to the art form of photography and not an accurate depiction of the world around us. And I, I suppose being an F1.0 lens is part of that because that's not the way that we see the world. We don't see that kind of shallow depth of field uh, with <laughs> our own eyes. And so um, that kind of equipment, it it's going to fill a niche. And that yeah. niche doesn't care about the MTF charts, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to satisfy people on message boards, but I think there's going to be a lot of beautiful images made with that. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, before, before we get into some of the, the, the happenings here, I should say that I'm, I'm going to be coming back on to DP Review TV myself mm-hmm. um, with a bit of a hiatus. You were here in February before the world ended. Um, and in the end times, I've been recording a couple of episodes uh, to, uh, to kind of uh, further that series that we have planned. And I won't say exactly what they're about, um, but I will say that I have uh, a table in my studio that's full of old computer processors that will be somewhere, I don't know, maybe episode three on that uh, I'm going to be taking a heat gun and a chisel to some of that stuff. And um, we'll, we'll see what chaos and beautiful imagery might ensue. And I've so, got an episode coming up uh, that'll be a bit of a surprise for winter fast approaching as well. That'll be coming uh, out there soon. I'm looking forward to all of this. Yeah, winter. It seems like we were just there. And time is kind of fluid. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast, but I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, we were talking about the the fires out west. And I was mentioning something like, uh, you know, remember, like, what was it a year or two ago when Australia was on fire? And he, he chimed in and said, you know, that, that was January of, of this year. That, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, okay. That just makes me feel awful about my recollection of time. But here we are, Jordan. We have right. the West Coast on fire. We've got the East Coast getting hit with hurricanes worse than ever. Uh, somewhere in Texas, there's a brain-eating amoeba in the water system. This is great. This well, is if we fine. just say everything's horrible, then this episode is timeless, right? We'll be dated at all. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, let, let's get into the stories that we have uh on the docket here before we get into them actually because we've talked a lot about some video stuff and i haven't had you on in a while um in the last episode we talked about um the a7c uh, from sony and previous to that we were talking about the lumix s5 not sure if you've had your hands on both of these or what your opinions are for what the videoscape is especially for smaller compact full frame uh dslr style cameras because it's really evolving quickly yeah, it's kind of funny. I feel like the A7C and the S5 are almost polar opposite cameras in a lot of ways. Uh, the image from the S5, I mean, we've been shooting on an S1H as our primary camera now for close to two years. Well, since it was launched initially. And I absolutely love the picture out of that. That's my favorite image out of a mirrorless camera. And the S5 shoots the format that we usually do. It shoots 115 megabit, 10 bit, 422. looks exactly the same with full vlog. Uh, it's a beautiful picture. And if you know what you're doing with it, you are going to get amazing results for a $2,000 US camera, uh, but doesn't autofocus great. It's better. Um, and now that's for video. For stills, I was actually quite impressed with how much of an improvement the S5 was. Um, where the A7C is the same image that we've seen from Sony for three years now at this point. Uh, no real advances there, but it is a small, brilliant autofocusing camera. So I think if you're the kind of person who's going to be running and gunning, it'll fill a lot of needs. But the S5, I would be happy to bring on to like a movie set. Uh, the image is that good. Uh, For that price, it's kind of unbelievable, but you've got to be able to manually focus in order to get the most out of it. Well, and in a professional setting, you're probably going to be doing that anyhow. You know, you say bringing it onto a movie set, you know, there's no autofocus mechanisms there um, in uh, in most cases. It surprised me that that they were willing to put through an external recorder 5.9K raw on that camera. and uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the results of that. And yet, you know, the, the A7C doesn't have that. It's really, it's geared towards that really tiny camera 
that uh, I think is only possible because of the small lens mount that Sony has introduced way back when that I still always say should never have been a full frame lens mount. But hey, taking advantage of it now and hurrah, uh, there is your splash in the pan after uh, the Panasonic announcement, which Sony has always done. They've always said, okay, well, let's uh, let's make uh, a big splash right after somebody else does theirs and steal their thunder. And uh, par for the course, they've done the same. But uh, I think Canon is another name that we need to bring in because our first story uh, is about uh, Canon. The uh, Canon has announced the EOS seventy or C seventy, a cinema EOS camera in a mirrorless body. Now. This is interesting because we've talked to death about the R5 and the overheating. And shortly thereafter, Canon introduces uh, a cinema camera. You know, I guess this would be technically the successor to the 1DC because there's nothing been in the right. uh, in the SLR format since then uh, that's geared towards cinema. Um, and it, it, it has no design cues that anybody would appreciate. Um, the, the back of this thing looks like they bolted a brick on, uh, and that brick, uh, contains a fan, uh, that is active cooling and it has a, uh, a pentaprism bump on the top. Um, yet it has no viewfinder viewfinder, electronic or otherwise, (laughs) uh, it's RF mount. Sure. Okay. So we, we've got that, uh, but it has a reduced size sensor that is specific for cinema. And and that does make sense, but it just feels like this weird Frankenstein of let's just bolt some stuff together to distract people from the R5. What say you? Yeah. I mean, I just kind of love that Canon keeps trying to make sports bodies as video cameras a thing. And everyone has been (laughs) saying for years, like, no, we don't want a really tall, shallow body. It doesn't work well. But here we are doing it again. Um, But outside of that, I have been waiting for an RF mount video camera um, for quite some time. It makes so much more sense than they've been slapping EF mounts on the C303 and the C502. And it's so much more adaptable. Uh, you know, Being able to use industry standard PL lenses with this makes a lot more sense. And I love that they built their own speed booster. Oh, yeah, because the, speed the booster. it's yeah. smaller. It's Super 35. Uh, it's Super 35. And so your image circle is smaller. And then you can adapt that by using, hopefully they've engineered it well. I haven't seen any footage out of it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, if you can take that image circle and shrink it back down, and that doesn't work in every case. It doesn't work in extreme macro. Uh, I've tried using speed boosters uh, in those scenarios, and it just fails. Uh, I mean, it succeeds in shrinking the image, but your clarity is just awful. Um but let's say 99% of the time for cinema work, that's going to be an advantage to somebody using this because it just gives more light to uh, whatever you're using it for and fully utilizes your lens, especially for wide angle work. That's going to be a helpful thing. Yeah, totally. It, the only downside is all of Canon's great lenses are RF mount, which don't have the space in them to allow you to use the speed booster and get the full frame coverage. Uh, so you are back to using regular old EF lenses, which are fine. Uh, but the RF lenses, I can, like I say this every time I talk about, those are stunning lenses. And I'm looking forward to using them on a video camera. But of course, we're doing that with Super 35, which the lenses weren't designed for. So I, just like you were saying, it does feel like an interesting conundrum that might not have been fully thought through. Yeah. And having an exposed battery compartment on the back, um, Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's interesting. I, I, a lot of video cameras have that. It's yeah, not the C series have for a while. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, um, but it does bring about a weather sealing issue. It's like, okay, well, you're going to have electrical contacts around the power source um, that there's no way that you can seal within that. And while at the same time, they're boasting that the fan mechanism is sealed away from the internal camera body electronics, which is good. I mean, that's what the S1H does, right? Yeah. I mean, yes, you can have a fan in a weather sealed body. That's not new. Um, it's been done before uh, and possibly in many other instances. I haven't looked at what Aerie is doing and uh, and how they could possibly be weather sealing their, their camera gear, although those are entirely different beasts. Um, some of those cameras could cost more than my house. Yeah. This one comes in at a price of uh, $5,500 and yeah. 600 if you want to get the uh, uh, the adapter, the, uh, the speed booster, although not by that name. Um, do you think, Jordan, that, and again, we don't have the full spec readout uh, on this camera. We don't know every menu item and custom function, et cetera. Um, but we do know the price. We do know that it shoots 4K and not beyond that. Uh, we, we know that, of course, it's geared to cinema and we can see the inputs and the outputs on, on the various sides and uh, stuff. Uh, that the fact that it's got mic level adjustments on the back with fancy knobs and dials that a regular like, DSLR like would not have. Um, it's got a lot going for it in terms of the flexibility and functionality um, at that price point, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I want to, that that's the caveat, $5,500. How much would the equivalent in a cinema body be from Canon? You know, keep things apples to apples. Yeah, if you're still going to stick by, if you're still going to stick with Super 35, uh, C303 would be the current, which this actually shares the sensor with. Uh, and I would have to look it up, but I think we're looking around 13 grand right now. Um, so, so for, pretty impressive. you know, a fraction of that price using the same sensor, you get a body in this weird morphed configuration that I, I don't, I don't love. I mean, I, I like that. It's weird. I, I love weird camera stuff. Uh, and this fits the bill for that. Um, I just, it's, it's also I, if it's a cinema camera, if it's Super 35, you have a shutter button where a regular camera shutter button is going to be on the front when you're gripping it like that. No cinematographer ever touches that button, right? Like it's it, that, that's a button you don't use when you're trying to start rolling. Uh, you'd use one on the top, one on the back, one on the front. Side. You don't use that because you're going to be holding the camera when you press it. And that first half a second of whatever you're recording is going to be blurry no matter what. It's just ergonomically wrong um i love how they label a lot of their buttons with numbers this is something that i don't think i've seen before on a camera like this uh they're custom function buttons they they, they, they don't go up to 11 they go up to 12 mm -hmm. um and so if you look around this body there's all sorts of strange buttons starting at one going all the way up to 12 10 is by the shutter button uh three, four, five, six is in a weird position below all the ports. One and two are on that same side as well. Nine, seven, eight, nine are on the back. It's just, if I, it's customizable, let's call it that. Uh, I, I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody. I don't know why the four button has a red circle around it, making it special. Uh, <laughs> okay, sure. Um, anyhow, that's yeah. there. That exists. I, I, I think the real question, yeah, is will people be willing to pay less for ugly? I mean, that you save a lot of money, but it's not a pretty camera. Now, well, I do, I do have to come... pay less for ugly in a lot of other areas of life. Valid. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, I do have to come to the defense of the shutter record button because, Don, I have an S1H right beside me here, and it has two big red record buttons, and I use the shutter. Oh, for shame. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is my guilty. Okay, well, okay valid. I mean, you're going to throw away the first second of footage anyhow. That's yeah. not it. It's, I know it's, I'm not, not using it. So Yeah. Um, okay, but I will come to the shutter button defenders. But yes, otherwise, it's not a pretty camera, but I, I adore that sensor and seeing it at this price point is super cool. So I still kind of want to get my hands on one. Uh, well, I, I do too, uh, just to see how this thing operates and how it functions because it just, it feels on one hand, the right hand, that it's a camera that you can hold. It's got the grip, it's got everything. And on the left hand, it's like, I can never hold this in any way that is ergonomic and useful. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I, I don't know if it has a full-size HDMI port, but as per your previous rants, I hope that it does. It does. Um, or that it is on a daughter board. <laughs> 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 All right. Keeping in line with cinema, also this week we've had an announcement from Moment, and Moment makes uh, typically a lot of mobile stuff. I've got a Moment macro lens um, that uh, that I featured in a photo in my upcoming macro book just to say that, hey, a smartphone can do macro photography, and it can do it well um, because, you know, optics can be adapted. Um, in, in the cinema world, I've known um, that it's almost easier to get certain effects in camera than it is to replicate them in post, especially when it comes to uh, certain things like flare. There was a company that I bought a lens from. They've since changed their name, and I forget what it is now, um, but I'll spell it. Uh, The first word, it was three words. The first word was dog, and the last word was optics. Yes. The middle word was spelled S-C-H-I-D-T. And you could imagine how that's pronounced. Uh, and they took old Soviet air lenses apart and they like added grime and dirt inside the optics in order to just muck stuff up because that would be so much harder to create in post uh, when you could just put on this lens for the special effect in camera and get something truly unique that uh, couldn't be replicated any other way. So uh, Moment has unveiled the Cinebloom its new line of diffusion filters. Um, do you use anything like this? Yeah, H- have you known cinematographers to use this kind of stuff? Yeah, totally. Um, and it's very similar to, there's a Tiffin um, Black Pro Mist filter that is an industry standard. You see it in pretty much every camera package and it's a very light diffusion filter. Um, so you get that nice blooming on your lights, reduces contrast and basically takes a little of the digital edge off. And that's exactly what these guys are going for that look. I would say their samples are a little over little much for me, but a lot of those seem to be with the, uh, I believe it's called the plus 20, the more extreme. There's also a uh, plus 10, which is a weaker effect on that, which I think is more compelling. But uh, I love doing this kind of stuff. The last uh, film I was the cinematographer on, we actually slapped a piece of glass and sprayed a mister on it to get that looking through a car window kind of diffusion effect. Um, you know, I, I use old lenses all the time when I'm working on narratives, not so much for DP review. Uh, because yeah, it is a ton of work in post to replicate this. And some of it, you actually have to get into like visual effects to simulate in the video world, where with Photoshop on stills, it's much 
a much more straightforward process. Oh yeah, you can just kind of easily run through the filter gamut and, and throw in a, a plugin or an action or something and come up with something useful. Yeah. Uh, video, it's more complicated. Um, and, and they're not the only company doing it. You know, uh, I found another company called Prism, uh, Prism Effects, uh, Prism Lens Effects. Um, and they've got something called a dream filter, which is just like a heavy duty uh, diffusion uh, filter. But they've also got these kaleidoscope filters, center field split diopters, uh, chromatic flare FX filters. Are these, are these getting into the realm of total gimmicks that uh, some somebody with a delusion of grandeur and cinematography wants to be all flashy and blingy and, and might buy some of this? Or does it have any merit? Well, a lot of it has zero merit. The kaleidoscope <laughs> filter baffled me. Okay, um, I, but here's the thing. I, I, I bought that filter. Okay, I'm about to make a confession too. Uh, I didn't <laughs> know they made a split diopter, and I love those, and the price on that is wonderful. So I am also going to order one of their split diopters <laughs> to play with. Uh, I bought the kaleidoscope filter because I, I have this vision of me putting it on a, a fisheye lens and shooting some video of the camera, like zooming around in flowers, pretending to be like a bug's eye view uh, that could be possibly good B-roll for a documentary film. And I do a lot of B-roll for docs. And, uh, you know, that if I shoot that on spec and I just have it on hand, <laughs> uh, then that if anybody needs 10 seconds of that footage, then it pays for that many fold. Yeah. Right. That weird filter. <laughs> Have you ever used a split diopter before, Don? It seems like something that'd be in your wheelhouse. It, it, well, it's, it's absolutely my wheelhouse. I only found out about them the other day. And, uh, and so I, I clicked on it when I was buying my, uh, my kaleidoscope filter and it said sold out. Um, so I've contacted them waiting for availability and they haven't gotten back to me yet, but, um, uh, I want it. <laughs> it's on my list too. Cause I, yeah, they're not cheap. I mean, these filters are like 70, $80. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have a legitimate professional use for something that can only be achieved, um, I, the software to replicate the effect would be many times that amount. Uh, and you might not get exactly the same look. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it. Uh, I, it's in my sites as well. There's a, a Twitter that I've been following for quite some time, which is just a list of split diopter shots in major motion pictures. Uh, I forget the name <laughs> of it off the top of my head, but I've, I've never had one. I've always wanted to mess around. So I'm totally going to order this and screw around I, with it a bit. I, I want to get their linear prism filter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I want to stick that on top of the kaleidoscope filter. And I, I don't know, uh, th- that's like crossing the streams right there. I, the world might explode, but I want to put I, the split prism on an anamorphic lens. That's my, <laughs> <laughs> sure. JJ Abrams have it, have it all, off on like a, a 45 oh. degree angle or just, <laughs> Oh, um, everybody would vomit, but that, <laughs> Hey, that stuff exists. And the links to find all of this weirdness is in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. So I encourage everybody to check that out. Um, we are mid stories here. We got two more stories to get to in picks of the week, but Jordan, I know people should know where to find you. We've kind of mentioned it, but where can people legitimately find you? Your work with, of course, the company we are both affiliated with, but also just your regular musings and happenings. Uh, yeah, you'll want to follow me on Instagram and Twitter or my big two at uh, at that Jordan Drake. Just those and two. TikTok, we're still 
disgusting. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I I have not gone there, and I you know I I don't think I will. That algorithm um, scares me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's I I don't do content that that's that that is that short on a regular basis, and uh, I find that if I want to kind of pigeonhole myself to making that kind of content, that's all I'm going to do. But I got so much more to say. Just like uh, a bee the- zipping back and forth to a Katy Perry song, Don. You have the footage already; <laughs> it's ready to go. I suppose, uh, you know, you, you've seen some of that footage. I, I think I remember shooting some uh, early raw footage of bees going in and out of flowers and ants and stuff I sent you. And then uh, th- this was early when uh, Panasonic was just testing the uh, the raw output of the S1H and I shot some stuff. I had no idea if you had any use for it. I didn't. Um, and it was specifically mentioned at the time that the early beta didn't really handle greens all that well. Yeah. And I jokingly said, I'm going to send you some really vibrant greens. And I did. And it failed. Yeah. Um, it broke completely, which is why that footage was not in our S1H raw. Uh, but it's been fixed. I mean, that was yep. beta stuff. And you always expect that when you have beta content and, and you know that uh, every scenario is going to be different. Uh, I remember the first time I had my hands on on an early prototype camera, you press the wrong button and it crashes mm-hmm. uh, because they just haven't gotten to that feature set yet. Um, but that brings me to prototyping and that brings us to the next story. And I, I don't know if I'm getting better or worse at segues. No, that but... was a deadly segue, Don. That was excellent. <laughs> so, uh, Canon has purchased a supercomputer for no prototype product development. And so this is according to Fujitsu, who is the manufacturer of this supercomputer, uh, that Canon Inc. Um, has placed an order for one of its ultra-powerful Prime HPC FX1000 uh, supercomputers uh, to effectively... Uh, take some of the guesswork out of prototyping hardware because you don't know exactly what the thermal controls are, <laughs> clearly with the R5, um, or uh, weather sealing or ruggedness, you know, how well it will survive being dropped and so on and so forth that would require it to break and then go back through the prototyping stage to revise the design and, and find a better way to do things. What if you could computationally fix that before you ever put anything into molds uh, before you ever start, you know, doing die casting or whatever it is that that is in the actual physical production of a prototype to solve problems before they exist. Would that lower the production cost or possibly allow new niche products to be produced that otherwise would have a cost so high it just couldn't be done? Uh, Yeah, it will. (laughs) That's what's great about it. Uh, The number of times we've been fortunate enough to be at a lot of camera manufacturers headquarters over the years. And Chris and I have seen tons and tons and tons of prototype products that never made it to fruition. And every time they tell us like this process is incredibly time consuming and expensive. And the prototypes that they show you, they're probably, they have flaws I guarantee you they have flaws that in order to reiterate the design, to remove those flaws would have cost as much mm-hmm. as to get them at their current state. And there's just no market for it. If they have to pour more dollars into it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think especially with the way that the photo industry is contracting a little bit right now, any way that they can save money and make stuff that might fit a photographic niche, I think is very, very smart. And Canon's one of the few companies that's big enough to actually pull this off. And I've looked up the uh, the actual unit itself, <clears throat> the uh, the Prime HPC FX1000, big name, um, 
It uses the A64FX processor, uh, which is ARM-based, ARM, -based, ARM uh, 8.2-ASVE uh, architecture for anybody Good. keeping track. I Good. needed to know, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, clocked at 2.2 gigahertz, uh, a theoretical peak performance of 3.3 teraflops. What, what's interesting here is it has a memory capacity of only 32 gigabytes, um, but that's HBM2 memory. And uh, for anybody following how graphics cards are evolving, that's about the fastest memory that you can get for graphics cards, which is usually where you'd find the fastest useful uh, throughput in, in these systems. And that's four stacks. Um, so huge memory bandwidth and everything. Um, one of them, though, a single one of these things doesn't really matter. I mean, a high-end desktop might be able to hit 2.2 gigahertz with 32 gigabytes of RAM, but these aren't designed as standalone units. These are designed to have, it says here, the main unit maximum number of nodes, which means, you know, processor yeah, and right. RAM combination, all, all that, is 384 nodes per rack. They don't state how many racks there are, and they don't state in the article how many nodes or racks Canon has purchased. So we're going to assume a lot um, if we're talking supercomputer, because a single node, that is not. Uh, so they're, they're really going, uh, going to town on what this is possibly going to be. And um, I, I think that a smart company should be doing this, right? They previously had the FX10 and FX100, which I guess in the same line, and they're just upgrading that. And it's noteworthy that they've been doing this all along. Um, and that just assumes that everybody else is doing the same. So the end result of this, Jordan, what are we going to see in the future? The next product launches, are they going to be uh, faster iterations of certain products? Keeping in mind that this doesn't help evolve sensor technology and other like the circuitry stuff the silicon can't evolve quicker when you have this ai tech um, because the process technology has to be evolved by um uh, tsmc and the people that make the chips and they have to make smaller extreme ultraviolet lithography and i'm using crazy terms i'm speaking another language now but what does it mean for us as photographers what does it mean uh for niche pro could, could you think of a camera a prototype that you saw that would have existed if they had the ability to prototype digitally uh none i could specifically talk about but um <laughs> but i i do think like the you brought up the canon r5 earlier i think that's the perfect example of this i see it largely as a way for them to avoid those kind of blind spots i i can't say for sure no one is saying but i have a feeling they were well into the development of that camera and then realized like oh we're gonna have some issues with this um which this might have prevented what i think it's most exciting for is optics because that's not dependent on like sensor technology or anything like that yeah. if you can just quickly slap together you know 20 different uh optical formulas for a lens and see what the various you know, lenses are all about which compromises you're going to make see what's the best option without yeah like you said putting in a mold or anything like that could save a ton of time and could mean that we're seeing a lot more interesting optical formulas 
Well, we've had optical formulas that computationally could have been created. Uh, we did this weird like wiggly lens story uh, that uh, theoretically is the perfect lens in a single element, but it would be impossible to manufacture uh, in doing so. And so, yeah, it's computationally correct uh, that it'd be perfect, but we still don't have the manufacturing processes down the road to actually right. make it exist. Um, and so from optics, there could be some really interesting uh, like uh, a asymmetrical designs where you've got maybe some like uh, lens that is like a parabola halfway through and then it's a different parabola on the other part of the, the inner part and the outer part is the point is we can calculate that now but we would need a machine like this to manufacture the machine to make the lens that's where that becomes much more meta Right. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, hey, we, we'd get there. It's going to play a, a part in, in the role of a future tech. So, uh, thank you, Canon, for buying a supercomputer to make our cameras better. Uh, and I, I, I can't guarantee you, I don't have the knowledge that other manufacturers are doing the same thing. But my suspicions are that anybody in this field is computing the hell out of everything in order to make sure that their, their first prototype is as close to the mark as possible. Yeah. So um, there we have it. Speaking of the intelligence that computers give us, um, from Petapixel, the Alice camera is a new AI accelerated computational camera. And it's from a British company, uh, uh, Photogram AI. They've announced a new camera called the Alice camera. It's an AI accelerated computational camera that aims to deliver better connectivity than a DSLR and better quality than a smartphone. How does it do this? Uh, a lot of algorithms and a sensor that can read out incredibly quickly, which has been whenever we talk to camera manufacturers about why aren't we seeing more computational stuff? They're like, do you know how fast your cell phone sensor can read out compared to our giant APS-C and full frame and micro four thirds sensors? Uh, that's been a real bottleneck. And it just happens that they've chosen a sensor that's very fast reading out. Um, and so it actually I, I, could work. It could work. Uh, I, I was suspicious of this at first, and I was kind of diving into the details because they didn't tell me uh, the stuff I needed to know. They, they said that it's 11 megapixels, sure. Or, I mean, in that ballpark, you might shave some pixels off here and there, but they said it was a micro four-thirds mount. Yeah. Well, that immediately raises a red flag because I think, well, if it's a micro four-thirds mount, it could be that size or smaller. And I did some searching around. I, I sent you some notes earlier that I had suspicions of certain sensors. And I finally think I found the one that they are using. Uh, and uh, that is a, a sensor that Sony launched back in 2017, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a current thing. And it was originally designed for 4K surveillance cameras. Um, and so a fast readout. Uh, and it's got a quad Bayer pattern sensor. So it takes a much uh, larger array of information and distills that down into 11 megapixels. Um, but it's got a pretty good readout and uh, it's looking like this might be a viable product, but I'm still confused by the heart and soul of this thing because its interface is your smartphone. Yeah. And uh, so you plug your phone into the back of it uh, by whatever means. I'm not sure exactly what the interface is. If it's uh, or, or it's Bluetooth, no, it's wireless. Or yeah, it's, it's, it's just... wireless. So it just kind of holds it on the back. Um, 
and uh, and then you use your phone as your interface, Gi- giant touchscreen, and uh, there's a couple of buttons on the top, and that's about it. So, is this going to fill a niche? That okay, you got your your smartphone, uh, iPhone 11, 12 coming out soon, uh, high end Android device from various companies um, that has so much awesome tech built into it that this can usurp that this will steal the crown of what the phone that you're using as a control device might already be able to do. Yeah, I do think we're dangerously close to that. Um, There's a few things that give me a little bit of hope, though. And one of them is of the cameras doing, because they're constantly talking about their computational techniques and their AI and things like that. Uh, I've used a few um, Olympus Micro Four Thirds cameras using some of those techniques, and the results are outstanding. Um, So it's kind of interesting that we could have that potentially with this, which is a very good sensor. Um, And I do think they can really keep the cost down with it. I mean, if you don't have to pay for a super bright, super fancy um, display on it, or especially electronic viewfinders, which are getting quite quite expensive to put in a camera and they were saying on there i think this was a thousand dollars they were aiming for uh when the kickstarter went through and you look at other cameras uh using that starva sensor those are all in the couple thousand dollar kind of wheelhouse and, and you can pre-order it for 50 british pounds right now that's roughly 64 dollars us uh as of this article um it it looks interesting it it's kind of one of those things where i i want to have my hands on to play with because yes. Uh, I don't know what it's going to do until I actively use it. And I can't even watch somebody else use it because it's a really experiential kind of device, right? Like yeah. you have to see how it modifies the cell phone capture experience, melding that with the digital photography experience that we're familiar with, with SLRs uh, or mirrorless cameras. Of course, we don't need mirrors anymore. Um, but I, I wonder I wonder if this is a niche that actually has a place that a company could be viable producing a product like this and end up making a second generation because they made the first one. It was okay. And they fizzled out of business. Like we saw with so many other niches, like um, the uh, Lytro cameras and uh, uh, light with their L 16 and yeah, they're niche cameras and they take a lot of funding to, to come up with. And if they don't provide something substantially different from the experience we already get, that's all we see of them. Yeah. And it really reminds me of there was the um, Olympus One, which was a micro four thirds sensor you could snap onto your cell phone, uh, which completely tanked the Sony. I believe it was called a CX100, where you could add a one inch sensor and zoom lens to your smartphone. Uh, Also, absolutely tanked. Um, But the difference with those is they were just bolting stills cameras onto this. If this is actually using the processing power in your cell phone, which is way more than any camera out there, then you could actually get some compelling results. I think that cameras like this are going to start coming out. I don't know if this is going to be the one that finally breaks through to the mainstream, but uh, I do think it is the future of consumer photography is these, you know, smaller, but a big-ish sensor with uh, a lot of computational stuff going on under the hood. And uh, this seems like the closest thing to a usable version of that I've seen so far. Especially if you offload the computational workload to your phone. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really important thing that you just mentioned, and it shouldn't be just kind of glossed over, um, is that the, the processors that our phones have are 
monsters. I mean, the, uh, the, the manufacturers that are building high-end uh, Google, Samsung, Apple phones, um, the amount of R&D and research and cost that they put into those processors alone um, are far more than the cost of an entire camera's suite of processors from any camera manufacturer because they sell in volume, right? These, these are huge market items. And, uh, and so you've got that powerhouse, that, that, that workhorse that is just waiting to be tapped. And if you interface it properly and you have enough bandwidth between uh, the imaging sensor and that processor that's in your phone, you could make some magic happen. I I'm not certain that that's going to be the only way of the future. I would actually like to see um, the, the cameras capture a a huge amount of information, sort of like what Canon has been doing previously with their um, uh, with their split pixel raw, where you mm -hmm. can uh, record that in certain cameras and do some stuff with it afterwards. But if you could just capture so much more, uh, almost like you know, all the you know sixteen different layers of diffusion and focus and and exposure that you would get uh, on a flagship phone, um, capture that on my camera. Uh, my workhorse physical camera camera, uh, and then have a software suite that computes that after the fact. Because that doesn't need to be computed in real time. Yep. It just needs to be gathered in real time. And so I think that might be the way that we see it get adapted into consumer products. Because if you don't need it, you don't use it. If you do, then it's in your raw file. And yeah, it might slow down your rate of fire because it's got to capture so much more information. Um, but the more that we have to compute with, the more that we'll be able to massage those pixels and find our new reality as a result. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I, I guess we're done with the stories. So um, <laughs> we're, we're wrapping but, through this pretty quickly. We're very concise today. Oh, damn. <laughs> No, I, I, we still have our picks of the week. Uh, and I will say that, uh, you know, check out these show notes at photogeekweekly.com. I did get some great feedback on the last episode, and I uh, hope I continue to get that. And again, uh, I'll have some new DP review uh, videos coming out in the very near future. I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, to opining on all sorts of uh, mad science-y stuff. Um, so uh, I... I can't put a link to the new episodes yet because they're not out yet. But uh, when they are, I will encourage you all to take a look. So uh, I guess we you you mentioned Jordan that um, you could uh, you could fill a thirty two minute monologue, very precise amount of time on your pick of the week. So I'm going to walk off for a half an okay. hour. Perfect. Uh, and uh, she's all yours. What, what, what's your pick? Okay, I have been using a Manfrotto uh, monopod, same model for uh, over a decade now. Um, the hydrostatic base um, ones, and I have finally, um, my friend Gerald, and I think you know Gerald as well. Um, Gerald, I, well, Undem I, I follow him, although I yeah. don't think we've ever actually conversed. Um, I'd like to call him a friend, but um, everyone in Eastern Canada, I assume, knows everyone, Don, just like <laughs> we all do here in Western Canada. <laughs> Well, you know, it was funny because uh, a, a colleague and friend of mine, and he's been on this podcast before, um, Brian Weiss, had a studio uh, called uh, the the Loft Studio in Newmarket, Ontario, and uh, and he since had to give that up. I mean, it was a partnership, and he became a, an assistant manager at Henry's, which well, they're not doing that great right now, anyhow. But um, 
but so he moved on to other things and uh, and that was filled by another uh famous canadian vlogger uh i don't know if i should state who because it might give away his location of his hidden layer right um but <laughs> there you go we we all kind of know each other a little bit yeah um yeah, I was watching, uh, Gerald did a video and said, this is the greatest video monopod ever produced. It's the iFootage Cobra 2. Uh, and iFootage has made some interesting stuff. I had one of their earlier sliders that uh, was actually surprisingly well-made. They're uh, UK-based. Um, but there were some things that were very interesting. The biggest thing that I've fought with with the Manfrotto's, and everybody mentions this, is uh, they pan very smoothly. However, if you need to... Uh, shift the axes, like if your you know level is off or something like that, they jump and it looks absolutely terrible in your footage. And if you're ever watching a DP review episode and you notice coverage for seemingly no reason, like why did he just cut away to that sun or that lens or that bush over there? It's because the leg did that irritating jumpy jerk thing uh, that I can't stand. So I've been looking for a while. Um, and this has a very smooth base on it. Um, it doesn't pan quite as smoothly as the Manfrotto, but uh, it doesn't have that weird jumpiness to it. But the main thing for me is uh, it stands on its own. Um, so I have put an S1H. I've even put bigger cameras. A uh, Canon C200 will just sit right on there. You can walk away from it. So you've got yeah, the load capacity. It says at least on B&H here is 22.1 pounds. Yeah, which that's. I mean, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> push the load capacity on I any wouldn't walk like away this. from it with 22 <laughs> pounds on it uh, but it is really impressive um, and uh, just to have the option because I shoot the majority of my work on a monopod uh, which um, even when I came well, out and shot with you in February I, and I, I missed had it one, so much yeah. I had one delinquent monopod that was the very one of the very first photographic purchases that I had bought uh, I think it was Manfrotto uh, and uh, you complained the entire time you were here that that's what you had to use. And I'm glad I never threw it out because you had something. Yeah. Uh, but it could be better. Yeah. I mean, th that was one time where I was like, I should have just shipped the monopods, like paid whatever it costs <laughs> just to have a real video monopod out for that shoot. I love working that way. Uh, it's also great. You can just quickly collapse a monopod, hold your camera, hold the, it in the center of gravity, and you've got a poor man's steady cam too. It's a very flexible tool. Um, but this guy has been rock solid. The locks on the Manfrotto slip constantly. These guys I haven't had to tighten up in the uh, couple months now that I've had this. Again, uh, well, they, they make a lot of products, by the way. I typed in um, iFootage Cobra. You linked specifically to the Cobra 2, um, the C, what was it, the C180? Yeah. Um, and they have uh, the C182, but they, they have a lot of different varieties, you know, with different lengths and different uh, attachments and accoutrements. The C uh 150 and 120 and so on. Uh, I'm assuming that means based on their overall uh, maximum achievable height. But that's yeah, max height. Uh, and that is the other thing. I have a lot of trouble finding monopods that will uh, go all the way up to the top of my statuesque frame. Uh, so having a big tall monopod, and that's the other great thing. Gerald's a tall guy, so I was like, if a tall guy likes this monopod, this could finally be the one for me. But uh, yeah, I haven't ever bought any kind of camera support product without actually physically getting in my hands. This is the first time I've done that, and it went well. So that was uh, quite reassuring. So if you're looking for a video monopod, uh, I wasn't crazy about the design of their heads, which you can get uh, bundled with them as a kit. So I just threw a regular Manfrotto video head on top of it, and it's been an absolute dream. You know, in, in the, the internet realm, 
that we live in, uh, there's always dissenting comments, right? Yeah, you know, there's, uh, especially on DP review. Uh, that's one of those scenarios where you, you're going to have trolls being trolls. It's just no matter what you say, they're going to call you on a typo or a mispronunciation. And I know it's happened I, to both of us. I apologize uh, on behalf of DP review for our <laughs> readership. Um, but the most critical review of this thing is three stars. And it it's basically saying, yeah, uh, it was great, but... Uh, the feet aren't really sturdy, but they don't really describe why. And you're telling me that they are very sturdy, more sturdy than anything else. It aggregates to a five-star review on BNH with 60 reviews. Um, Doesn't I've, happen often. I've never seen a five-star aggregate on on anything for any purpose ever. So, uh, yeah, I guess the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. The one other thing I did forget to mention that is really cool is you can just pop the top and the base off of it. Uh, just a little pin, you drop it down, it pops right off. And then you have a super tiny, like a tabletop tripod or a low boy, uh, they call them. Um, so you can get one of my issues with monopods. They only collapse so small, so you can't get really low angle shots. Just drop this off and you can get almost a ground level with it. Uh, uh, yeah, and there's a bit of work involved. You got to put a head on the bottom versus the top, and so yeah, you got to spend five ten minutes reconfiguring yourself. But I yeah. mean, if that's the shot that you need, then you yeah. get it. Generally, yeah. you'll have a head on anyways. Uh, so uh, yeah, it takes me about twenty seconds to get switch over to a low shot. And if you want to see that in action, I have it on my Instagram. All right. Well, we'll make sure that that is linked to in the show notes, also at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, my pick is something really simple, inexpensive. I found a, an eBay link uh, for $9. Uh, it's got $6.50 shipping to Canada, but it might be cheaper in the US. Still, it's sub $20 for this item, and it's something that you should just have in your kit for when you ever need it. Polarizing film. So uh, we have polarizing filters. That's great. Uh, you know, you can cut out reflections off of non-metallic surfaces right on your lens itself. You need that. It's a good thing to have. But what if you could polarize your light source itself? And that ends up being useful in uh, things like product reproduction photography. Uh, you just get rid of reflections off of like a, a glass bottle or artwork uh, mm -hmm. or anything like that, where you just don't want the reflections off of the oil paints or the glass or whatever sheen there is. Um, I don't know if this is a hidden secret that I'm giving away, but if you have two main primary lights on about a 45 degree angle to your subject and you cover them with polarizing film, uh, then uh, you put a polarizer on your camera and dial it in to completely cancel out that polarized light. You remove those reflections entirely. Yes, in some cases you want a little bit, but now you can control exactly how much or how little you want. And that to me ends up being a very valuable piece of kit for, again, uh, $9 US uh, on eBay. Now that's for a 32 inch sheet um, because it's designed to replace the polarizing film in front of a computer screen or a TV because every screen that we have, whether it's your phone, your laptop, desktop, whatever, it's always polarized. And so they sell these polarizing sheets. Yeah, it's not going to be great. It's not going to be the best quality, but it will be enough for you to cut out all of those reflections <laughs> for almost nothing. And you might even be able to get some gigs uh, and hang out your shingle as an artwork reproduction photographer uh, if you already have some nice lights uh, to, to, to make that happen. 
Um, I've even used them, cutting them to small pieces, putting them in opposition to each other. Uh, I wish I had it in front of me, a, um, uh, a just an old plastic CD case. And it creates a birefringent cross-polarization rainbow color effect um, that acts as a light filter that I used for a recent shoot just to colorize the light in this weird rainbow fluidic pattern um, that was useful for something. Yeah, and you can actually so, see that in that DP review episode that we shot together. Yeah, that, that yes, well, I used that that exact filter uh, in the freezing soap bubble filter uh, episode that we put in DP review uh, before the world ended. So I'll I'll link to that, and uh, and you'll see exactly how that works. And you just cut it to size, and it's so simple, so easy. Uh, you might not have a use for it right now, but if you ever do. That's one of those go-to things that's in my massive eclectic table of nonsense camera gear um, that I always know where it is because that's a helpful tool just to get the job done sometimes or to be creative. It's crazy because uh, back when I worked at the camera store, we had a few sheets of Lee polarized gel, uh, which I'm sure is optically great, but it was also $150 for a two by three foot sheet of this stuff. Uh, so I was like, oh, that would be really fun to experiment with. I am not going to touch that sheet of polarized <laughs> gel right now. So if there's, if I can get a budget option, I never would have even thought of looking at it, uh, you know, in probably the AV section um, on a website. That's awesome. I'm totally going to go I've screw around some, with that. I've seen some TVs that use these and you get this weird rainbow effect on them. And it's just, it's a non-starter, anything off angle, and it's not going to work really well in a production, like putting it on your television, you will hate it. Who repairs a TV uh, anyways to, to fix that? It, it, um, but just as a light modifier. Yeah. Uh, and that's all it's, that's all it is right here is a light modifier. You want it to muck up the light. Uh, and so it does. And it does so in an acceptable way. Um, I guess I'm getting a split diopter and a sheet of polarized gel this week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to spend your money, Jordan. Uh, what else are you up to this week? What, what's the, if you can talk about the next stuff that might be coming out, even in a roundabout way, tease us a little. Uh, yeah, we've got the Nikon Z5 review is finally coming out, and I love this camera. Uh, now, not speaking from my, I would use it in a video sense at all. Um, they've basically done what photographers have been asking us or asking manufacturers to do for years is just strip out the video goodness from the Nikon Z6 and keep most of the photography stuff and cut the price almost in half. Um, you know, video is a heavy crop. It's not great, but the ergonomics on it are outstanding. It's a Nikon D750 sensor that's got a very good reputation. Uh, and, uh, it really doesn't hold back dual card slots, great battery life, same autofocus as their top-of-the-line cameras. Uh, for an entry-level full-frame, I think it's one of the most compelling cameras out there, and it hasn't gotten a lot of buzz this year. So that's my uh, spoiler for our review coming up, but I love that camera. It, it looks uh, spec-wise that it's well-equipped. Um, uh, it, it always bothers me when when something looks great on on spec, and then when you're actually using it, there's just some weird quirk that makes it just a non-starter. But if you're saying that there isn't anything in this camera, 
um, then I look forward to seeing that review. Yeah, it even has their top of the line viewfinder, uh, which is an excellent optic. So I was very uh, what, impressed by that. It's their. Uh, what is the uh, what's the pixel count on that one? It's a three point six nine million, so same as like a GH five or something like mm. that. But the optics in front of it are absolutely outstanding. Um, really nice to look at, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a killer little camera for the price. So that's coming up, and then uh, I don't want to spoil things too much, but there is a pile of announcements coming out in October and I'm very busy working on a bunch of those right now. Uh, It's nice. Nikon has teased. We do know that the uh, Z6 Z7 will be coming shortly, and I'm looking forward to getting my hands on those guys. Uh, and you cannot comment whether or not you have your hands on them already. I get that. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Um, I, I, it, it's pure silence in, you can't, in that regard. You can't see the video feed of me making the hand over the neck gesture, <laughs> all of you people listening, but I'm doing it furiously right now. Yeah, so I, I again... Um, there is no confirmation or denial. There is no knowledge whatsoever imparted. There is nothing that we can say that Jordan uh, has access to. Um, but I look forward to whenever we can say certain things. Um, and uh, that'll be soon. I'll have to have you back on when that happens, Jordan. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Again, you can find us at photogeekweekly.com for all the show notes, all the places where you can find Jordan. Uh, And Jordan, thanks again. Always a pleasure, Don. Talk to you soon. And and, uh, all that said, thank you for everybody that is being safe in the world right now. Uh, Stay safe. Continue to do so. Uh, Now it's time to stay in and shoot.